In chapter 10, we started this parenthesis here within the book of Revelation. One way to think about it is a lot of chapter 1 through 9 was heaven's perspective of what was going on on earth. From chapter 10, really through about chapter 18, we see earth's perspective of what's happening here on earth. But we're given this parenthesis to fill in all these different details that have gone on through these seven seals that have been ripped off and their judgments through these... uh, Six trumpets, we're going to go through the six and seven trumpet uh, this morning and see what's going on. So it's good to remember, there's a parenthesis here really almost until the end of Revelation. But let's go ahead and read verses one through six. It says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shed heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desired. This chapter 11 has much to do with these two witnesses. You may be here, this is the first time you ever heard of this. If you're really into prophecy, if you're a prophecy geek, right, that's your hobby, that's your thing. Maybe you're getting excited about going through the two witnesses. But we come back to verse 1. We see that John is given a reed, he's given measuring tape, and he's told to measure the temple of God and also the altar and to measure those who are worshiping there. He's told to not measure the court which is outside because it has been given to the Gentiles and they're going to tread on this holy city for 42 months, which is about three and a half years. One question comes up is, what temple could this be? Which temple is he speaking of here? We know the temple. David wanted to build it. God told him, you can't. Solomon, he's the one that builds the temple. Later on, it's destroyed. After that, Jerubbabel, he builds a temple. And then Herod takes over that temple, makes it super fancy and nice, right? But then in 70 AD, this temple is destroyed by Titus of Spessian and the Roman army. The book of Revelation is being written around 90 AD, so the temple and Jerusalem has already been destroyed for 20 years. So there's no doubt that the temple that John is being asked to measure is not the temple that he once knew walking with Jesus. A couple scriptures to come to mind. Don't lose the, the focus. We're trying to figure out which, which temple this is. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, Paul prophesies to the Thessalonians that, in verse 3, chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. 
so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So again, the temple's already destroyed. But here the warning is that one day the man of sin, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and all that worship God, he's going to rise up and he's going to want to be worshipped as God in the temple of God. So we're on this track. What temple is this? So Paul, he's speaking in 2 Thessalonians that the Antichrist is going to one day come, build a temple, and one day he's going to come and he's going to be telling all the people they're worshiping at the temple, stop worshiping God and worship me. I am God incarnate. Jesus speaks of this same moment and he gives it a name. Maybe the name will sound familiar to you. It's found in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15 and 16. Jesus says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So Jesus here, he's warning, hey, if you're around and you see the desolation, the abomination of desolation taking place, run. Go hide and go run. And then in verse 21 of Matthew 24, we've read this verse a lot throughout the book of Revelation. Jesus says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. So Jesus says that he's referencing Daniel the prophet. Let's turn to the book of Daniel. We'll look at one verse in chapter 12, and then we'll look at a portion of scripture in chapter 9. Daniel chapter 12, the prophet Daniel, he's most known for, right, sleeping with the den of lions and surviving, right? Maybe others have slept with the den of lions, but they haven't survived. We'll look at that later on as well. But Daniel was a prophet that was able to withstand three different kingdoms coming in and out, and yet they all kept him within the king's inner circle, which is very interesting and again, an amazing feat shows the type of man of God that he was. But there in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, Daniel says, And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So this is a little over three and a half years that this is going to take place. We know the Great Tribulation is seven years long, and we're given two instances here of three and a half years. Now we come to Daniel chapter 9. Bear with me. I don't know how many of you wanted to wake up on a Sunday morning and have a math lesson, but we're going to have a little bit of math to do here. I'll do all the math for you. Don't worry. If you want to pull out your calculators and fact check me, you can do that as well. But there in Matthew chapter, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, we're given here really the backbone of prophecy. We are going to see here when the temple is going to be rebuilt. Daniel, he's carried away. The Babylonian Empire destroys all of Israel. They take a few of these young men. They make them eunuchs. And now they teach them everything about Babylon. That's in Daniel chapter 1 and 2. But Daniel, he's here, and the angel Gabriel speaks to him and gives him a prophecy. And it's a prophecy of when the temple's going to be rebuilt. Then we're going to be given the prophecy of when the Messiah is going to come. And then finally, we're going to give him the prophecy of when the Antichrist comes and when Jesus will come to rule and reign after that. So Daniel chapter 9, 
verse 24 through 27. Again, this is the angel Gabriel speaking to Daniel. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So these 70 weeks that are determined here, it's 70 times 7 years. You don't have to do that math. That's 490. My mother-in-law, she's a great math teacher, but she's out of town. She should have done this right. But 70 times 7 is 490. Then Daniel, or Gabriel, he breaks it down into three groups. He gives us 49 years, then he gives us 434 years, and then he gives us seven years, the different prophecies happening. The first prophecy, these 49 years, is the time that it took to rebuild Jerusalem from the moment King Artaxerxes gave the command in 444 BC to the day that it was built. That's these seven weeks. Then after that, we're given 62 weeks that the Messiah is going to be cut off, but not for himself. 434 years after Jerusalem is rebuilt, Jesus would enter into Jerusalem riding a donkey and have palm fronds placed on the road. People would be taking off their coats on the road and would be yelling out, Hosanna which is come and save us, save us. This is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which is found in Matthew 21. A week after that, Jesus would be put to death on the cross. Was it because of his own sins? No, it's not for himself. It was to save us, to reconcile us, and to give us a way out of hell for all of eternity and a way to go to heaven for all of eternity. Later on, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. We spoke of this 70 AD. Roman government comes in. They destroy all of Israel. They destroy Jerusalem. And they destroy the temple. The people of the prince, many people, they think that the Antichrist is going to come from the Roman government. Something he's within the Catholic Church. It's the Pope himself. Again, be careful with that. Be careful with that. We spoke about this last week. When you don't know, dwell on what you do know. That's what we should do. Don't sit here now and create your own YouTube channel of who the Antichrist is and who the two witnesses are and the seven thunders. Don't be paying attention to that. 
Pay attention to what we do know. The prince or the ruler who is to come, that's one day the Antichrist is going to come. So, so far, we have 483 out of the 490 years. How many years are left? You guys are great math scholars, right? Seven years left. These seven years are left. And here, this is where many scholars would say that sand hourglass is put on its side. Now, in case you've never seen one of those before, right, it's you have a timer on your phone and you pause that timer. And there's seven years left. Why would there be a pause? Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus tells us, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. You see, there's a theme throughout the New Testament that the second coming of Jesus has to be at a moment that no one knows. We should be living in a constant expectation that it could happen right now. It could happen tonight. It could happen tomorrow. But there's these last seven years of this 490-year period, which will be known as the Great Tribulation. And what we believe is that the rapture is going to cause the Lord to stand up that sand hourglass or to put resume on that seven-year timer that still remains. Then in verse 27, it says, Then he, speaking of the Antichrist, he's going to confirm a covenant with many for one week. You'll hear a lot of people say the Antichrist is going to have a peace treaty and this treaty and that treaty. We don't see those specific words in Scripture. It makes sense. But what we see specifically in Scripture is that he's going to make a covenant with many for one week. That one week means seven years. But in the middle of the week, he's going to bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So he's going to make this covenant. There's going to be sacrifice and offering taking place in Jerusalem. And halfway through, he's going to stop it. And he's going to say, worship me instead. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 14 and 15, uh, notice this prophecy from Isaiah. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said we have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, we are in agreement. Jesus would say in John chapter 5, verse 43, speaking to the Pharisees, he says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Again, it's interesting because Orthodox, Orthodox Jews today are waiting for a Messiah to come and rebuild the temple. Many believe that Muslims, they're waiting for a Messiah to come and bring peace on this earth and perhaps build a temple for the Jews. So you have all these different religions waiting for one ruler to come and bring peace. Even in our nation, the last two weeks, right, there's people crying out for peace. When is the violence going to end? When is this evil going to end? When are the atrocities going to end? And one day this Antichrist will come. So the Antichrist... He makes a covenant for seven years during the Great Tribulation. Halfway through, what's half of seven? Three and a half. Again, you guys are incredible, right? Three and a half years. He stops it and then he says, hey, worship me instead of what you're worshiping in the temple. So this is roundabout way to say this is the temple that we believe John is measuring. He's measuring the temple that one day will be built during the Great Tribulation. 
It's interesting because John is told to not measure the outside of the temple. Many of us would say today the only way a temple can be built on the Temple Mount is by not affecting the Muslim quarters there with the Dome of the Rock Mosque and the Alaska Mosque. So some people say that today, there's going to, or when the Antichrist comes, there's going to be a great wall of separation and the temple will be on one side and the Jews will worship there and the Muslims will be on the other side and they will worship there, which again will take a great feat of an incredible politician. We go back to Revelation 11. Hopefully that makes sense and you're not more confused than when you first got here. If that didn't make sense, you could go on the Calvary Miami website, look up Raz Vasquez, Daniel chapter 9, and then uh, hopefully it makes more sense then. That's the temple. Now we look at these two witnesses. Verse 3 tells us that God, he's going to give them power. He's going to give power to his two witnesses. They're going to prophesy 1,000 260 days clothed in sackcloth. This word witness and the Strong's uh, Concordance is faithful interpreters of God's counsel. Faithful interpreters of God's counsel. It's important that we are faithful to interpret God's word. It's interesting just hearing some of the new people come into church and they're saying how blessed they are that we're just going through the Bible. We're not making up things or trying to pull things out of air or just what we think or hypotheticals. We're trying to go through God's word and faithfully interpret God's counsel. Merriam-Webster, he says, a witness gives their testimony to a fact or to an event. They give their evidence towards this fact or towards this event. So during the Great Tribulation, there's going to be two witnesses with power from God, and they're going to be giving their testimony to a fact and to an event, right? That Jesus Christ has come upon this world, lived a perfect life, and died taking your place and my place, and the place of any and all that are willing to say, Jesus, my faith is in you. They're going to prophesy for a little under three and a half years, and they're going to be clothed with sackcloth, which speaks of mourning and speaks of repentance. And the prophecies of old, they would constantly speak of repentance towards their nation. And they would speak of mourning. We need to mourn our sins, mourn the sins of our nation, and repent and get right with the Lord. In verse 4, we're told of two olive trees and two lampstands that are standing before the God of the earth. This goes once again to speak of the power that God is going to give these two men. If you're quick, you could turn to Zechariah chapter 4. And Zechariah, he's woken up by an angel and he has a vision, right? A vision right after he wakes up and the vision is similar to these two olive trees and these two lampstands. And there in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, he says to him, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl, and the other to its left. Then in verse 6, he answers and says to him, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. 
Now, on Wednesday, we spoke of the lampstand. Throughout the book of Revelation, we've been speaking of lampstands. A lampstand, you could think of a mic stand. What's the purpose of a mic stand? To hold the mic, right? It's not just to stand there. It's to hold something. It's the same purpose for a lampstand. It is there to hold up the lamp. In the tabernacle and in the temple, there would be seven bowls, and then it was the role of the priest to tend to the bowls, making sure they were filled with olive oil, the purest of olive oil, and that the wicks were at the perfect length. But here in Zechariah, he speaks of a lampstand that has seven pipes directly plumbed in with two olive trees feeding the lampstand itself. This is speaking of the power of the Holy Spirit Filling a willing vessel with the Holy Spirit to be that lampstand. What are we standing up? What are we propping up? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Again, that's our role as a church. That's your role as a believer. It's not to put on a pedestal your beliefs or your political views or any other thing. Our role as believers and as a church is to prop up Jesus Christ. And the only way we can do this is if we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the application to Zechariah's vision had to do specifically with Joshua and with Zerubbabel. However, during the Great Tribulation, what we just read in Revelation chapter 11, is that God is going to use another two men as witnesses for him, and they're going to be plumbed in directly with the power of the Holy Spirit, and they're going to put Jesus Christ on display. These two men are his witnesses, and they're going to be fully connected to his spirit. Back to Revelation chapter 11. We'll finish a little bit more of this narrative, and then we'll look at how we can apply it to our lives. Verse 7 says, When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. We're also told that they're going to be alive for those thousand days, right? Those three and a half years. What is all of this to say? That it wasn't till the day that God had destined for their testimony to be over that the beast, which is the Antichrist, would be able to have power over them to put them to death. That Satan could do all he wanted. The Antichrist could be as mad as he wanted. But until the day that God says it's over for them, they had no power over them. So how do we apply this to our lives? A couple things. It's interesting that there's two witnesses here. And even Jesus himself in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, how did he send out the disciples? He sent them out two by two. We know that where two or more are gathered, Jesus, he's there in the midst of them. Now, each of us, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us if we're a believer. We should be constantly be asking to be refilled with the Holy Spirit. But there's something special about having another believer there with you. Even from the Old Testament, you have Moses and Aaron, his brother. You have Caleb, the older faithful man. And you have Joshua, the younger faithful man. You have Jonathan and his armor bearer. You have Peter and John. You have Paul and Barnabas. And there's something special about being sent out two by two. It's important for us to know. Some people, they make excuses for missionary dating, right? 
or missionary partying. Yeah, I'm going to go to this party and I'm going to preach the gospel there all by myself, right? Usually doesn't work out very well. Missionary dating for the far majority of people, right? There's exceptions to the rules. We don't go by the exception. We go by the rule. And often than not, you have the unbeliever pulling down the believer. But Jesus, he sends them out two by two. So how can we apply this to our lives? Is we should be witnesses in the day and ages that we're living. But who's your buddy, right? Who's the person with you that while you're speaking, they can be praying. Or while they're speaking, you can be praying. Again, there's something special about being sent out two by two. Ecclesiastes, we don't have time to go there, speaks about the importance of having two, having that threefold cord attached to the Holy Spirit. But we are called to be witnesses. David Guzik, he says, if we will be witnesses, we must first have something to witness. What's the first thing we're witnessing? Our own personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Then we must have the power of the Holy Spirit to bring forth the story of what we have witnessed effectively. Are you being that witness for Jesus Christ? Are you being that witness for the fact of God's word and for the evidence that you've seen, the events that have taken place in your life? Are you being that witness? Each of us, we're a witness for different things, right? Maybe in this season you're a witness for the NBA Finals, and that's all you're talking about, right? You're talking about it. It's on your social media. You're talking about it with everybody. You're that witness for this sport or for this athlete. You're that witness for this art or this hobby. In preparing, I was thinking about a couple of years ago, right? There were many people who they were witnesses for Herbalife, right? Hopefully none of you here feels you. Don't worry. We forgive you. We love you, right? And you would be on social media and a friend you haven't heard from in decades message you, man, I miss this person. How are you doing? Hey, you want to buy some Herbalife from me, right? They were witnesses for Herbalife. If that's you, don't worry. We forgive you. We love you, right? But they went out to preach of the facts, of the evidence, of the events that had taken place in their life. Each of us, we should be a witness. And a witness, we'll see later on, it's not something we do, it's who we are. Our lives need to be a witness of the events that have taken place in our lives. What Christ has done for us, what he's freed us from, what he's saved us from, what he's given to us, what he's blessed us with, his goodness and his unmerited favor upon our lives. We need to be witnesses of these things in word and in deed. A lot of people will ask, who are these two witnesses? I'll tell you straight up, Revelation 11 does not tell us. And once again, you shouldn't go crazy trying to figure it out. Shouldn't be going on YouTube pages. Who are the two witnesses, right? But just in case there, there are false prophets that come along and they'll say that they're one of the two witnesses, right? We'll give our best, uh, our best biblical guess here. We see in verse 5 and 6 that they have power. If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. Some of you say, hey, that's the witness buddy that I want in my life. Right? I go street witnessing, and if anybody wants to hurt us, fire comes out of their mouth. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These tells us of the power that's given to them. They are given power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have power over waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now, once again, when we don't know, and the Bible says we don't know, 
Just dwell on what you do know. All that to say, here's our best biblical guess. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Malachi has a prophecy here. And he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Matthew chapter 17, verse 11, Jesus answers and says to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. So most Bible scholars, they agree that Elijah is probably at least one of these two prophets. Let's turn to James chapter 5, as we were even speaking of the importance of prayer at the beginning of the study. James chapter 5 speaks once again of Elijah and the power that God had given to him. James chapter 5, verse 16 When we don't know, dwell on what you do know. Dwell on James chapter 5, verse 16. It tells us, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So this speaks of the power that God had given Elijah. But I love this because it tells us Elijah wasn't a super saint. Elijah had a nature just like you and I. He wasn't this super special, incredible man. He had like nature just like us. He was just a man given to the Lord and given to prayer. Elijah put on his robe the same way we would put on a robe, right? Elijah would put on pants the same way we would put on pants. Elijah, after having fire rain down from heaven and consume the prophets of Baal, right afterwards he'd go into a crazy depression and he would run away for his life. Again, he was a man just like us, but he was a man given to prayer and a man given to his relationship with the Lord. The powers of these two witnesses, it tells us that they have the power to have fire come out of their mouth and devour their enemies. Now, that may not necessarily be that they are fire-breathing witnesses. Elijah, we know that uh, King Ahab, he sends an army delegation to come and arrest Elijah and bring him before the king. He comes with a bad attitude, and Elijah just speaks, and fire rains down from heaven and consumes the entire army. They send the second army, and this commander thinks he's bigger and better than the first guy. So then now this guy comes again with the same bad attitude, and now this guy, he's consumed, he and his army, and they're burnt to a crisp. So now they send a third third commander, a third general, and this guy comes and says, all right, Elijah, I got a wife, I got kids, I got grandkids, right? These guys, they came in whatever they wanted to, but please have mercy and grace upon me. So Elijah, he doesn't have him consumed to a crisp. So many scholars, they believe Elijah is one of these two witnesses. Where people go off after that is it's either Enoch or it's Moses. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, we know of Enoch that he walked with God and then he was not, for God took him. So people, they'll look at Elijah. Did Elijah die? Elijah didn't die. He had the best Uber ever, right? He had a fiery chariot come, pick him up, and take him straight to heaven from there. He didn't die. Enoch, he didn't die either. So some people, they look to Hebrews 9. We'll look at that later in a different context, that every single person needs to die once. So God, he's going to bring back Elijah and bring back Enoch so they could die. 
But, Eli- but uh, Lazarus, he didn't die once. Uh, Dorcas, Tabitha, they didn't die once. Lots of people in Scripture, they died twice, right? Talk about difficulty and hardship. They had to die two times. And we know that there's going to be a generation, hopefully our generation, that we will never taste of death because the rapture will come and Christ will call us up with him. So many scholars believe Moses is going to be this second witness. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the two people there with Jesus, it's Moses and it's Elijah. And this would make sense and fit that if God is wanting to save people out of the nation of Israel, that he would send the law and the prophets. Moses, the one who brought the law, brought the Ten Commandments, was told all the law and he wrote it down. Right, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then Elijah, who's the beginning of the line of these prophets. Back to verse 7, Revelation 11. It tells us when they finish their testimony, that's then when the beast ascends out of the bottomless pit. We looked at this bottomless pit the last two weeks, but that's when this beast comes up, that's the Antichrist, and he's going to make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So we saw within the narrative that these two guys, they're basically untouchable until their three and a half years timeline is over and their testimony is over. That's when the beast can come out and kill them and finish them. How do we apply this to our lives? There's a beautiful truth lines throughout scripture that we, if we are in God's will and we're being those faithful witnesses, we're giving that testimony, we are untouchable until the day that God has destined for us to die. And there's a beautiful truth within that, that if you struggle with anxiety, you struggle with depression, you're fearful of driving, you're fearful of hurricanes, you're fearful of this sickness or that sickness, you need to rely on the Lord and the truth of this. Job chapter 14, verse 5, Job says, Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Psalm chapter 39, verse 4 and 5, David says, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as hand breaths and my ages as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but a vapor. Again, David says God knows the number of days we have. He can measure them just on the palm of his hand. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27. It says, and it has been appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So again, each of us, God knows the day and the second that you were to be born. And God knows the day and the second that you were to die. That all of mankind is to die. The power of death, it's not in the hand of the government. It's not in the hand of our enemies. It is in the hands of our God. And we should trust in that. We should trust in him. We should live this life not in fear. This world wants us to be afraid of everything, right? Now monkeypox, we got to be afraid of the monkeys out there, right? And be afraid of the monkeypox coming to get us. We, the world wants us to be fearful of everything, But God says the righteous, they are bold as lions. Do we walk in fear? No. Do we walk in stupidity? No, right? We don't do that either. We don't go now tempting lions and putting on blindfolds and walking through I-95. We don't do that either. But we walk in the truth of God's word and we do not allow fear to consume us. We also see here the balance of being a witness and giving a testimony. 
David Guzik, he says, this passage illustrates the difference between being a witness and giving a testimony. A witness is not something we do. It's something we are. Giving testimony is just what a witness does. Again, that word throughout the New Testament, the word martyr, is that same word witness. And the reason why these men and these women were willing to die for the sake of Christ is that they were witnesses for Jesus from the day that he, they, he saved them. Are we that witness that in life and in death others can witness the change of Jesus Christ within us? When the dirty jokes happen, when the gossip happens, when people are talking garbage at work or in the family party, are we that witness to stand up for righteousness and walk away? Or stand up for righteousness and say something. Again, we need to give the gospel with our words, but our actions need to put it on display as well. Go back to Revelation chapter 11. Now verse 8, we continue in this narrative. These men, they have the power for different plagues. They stop rain. All the different plagues happen. Fire rains down from heaven. They're untouchable till the day, the moment that their testimony is over. Then the Antichrist kills them. Verse 8, it tells us, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Again, it's interesting. Sodom was destroyed by fire. Egypt's destroyed by these plagues. Where, our, where also our Lord was crucified. Where was Jesus crucified? In Jerusalem. So these two bodies are going to be there lying dead in Jerusalem. Verse 9. And then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. They will make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So the whole world is going to see these two dead bodies on display for three and a half days. The world is going to have such hatred, such contempt, and no respect for them that they're going to want to leave their dead bodies out in the streets for three and a half days. The planet, they're going to be excited about this. They're going to see these two prophets as the ones who are tormenting all of earth. All of the different plagues happening on earth, maybe all of the death on earth, they're going to blame it on these two men. It also just shows us how our world is going to be more and more resistant to the gospel, more and more resistant to the good news that they're going to see these men prophesying to them as torment. Again, we need to be ready for this as this world continues to get worse and worse. It's going to get to the point where once they die, they're going to rejoice, they're going to make merry, and they're going to send gifts to one another. There's going to be a whole new Christmas here, right? It's going to be Happy Dead Prophets Day. And instead of Secret Santa, they're going to have Secret Satan, and they're going to give gifts to each other, right? And they're going to hand things off, and they're going to make merry in their hearts. Again, just how evil the world is going to continually get. We're seeing demonic Activity happening within our world, if you're not watching the news, again, that's exactly what's happening with the abortion, with the shootings, with all of these things happening, with this whole month, just demonic activity happening. 
But the world, they're going to be in for a world of surprise. Verse 11, now after three and a half days, the whole world is watching. One final note on that. The whole world is watching. Could the Great Tribulation happen in the 1700s? Could the whole world be watching two men laying dead in the street in Jerusalem? Not even in the 1800s, the 1900s, right? Not really till the, when TV comes out and there's mass broadcasts. But now with our cell phones, right, you have Instagram, you have Twitter, you have Twitch, you have all these different ways where people are live streaming the good, the bad, and the ugly on an instant. So three and a half days, they're lying dead in the street. Their bodies are decaying. And then all of a sudden, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies saw them. So again, the whole world, they're going to be in for surprise. The live stream is going to be happening all of a sudden. Right? I don't know what this looks like. Maybe the arms come back into join, all the decay, the bodies come back to normal. They stand up on their feet, and now the whole world, everyone that's watching them, great fear falls upon them. They've been doing all these plagues on them for the last three and a half years. They thought they killed them. They had their merry, right, dead prophets day, and now they're up on their feet. So now they're afraid, they're fearful. Then a loud voice from heaven comes up and says, come up here. And now these two prophets ascend to heaven in a cloud. This is the Shekinah glory of God. And it says their enemies saw them. Verse 13, in the same hour, the same hour this happens, there's a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Again, this must have been trippy for the apostle John. He's already seen Jerusalem destroyed once. Now in this vision, he's seeing Jerusalem built brand new and whatever day and age this is happening. And now he's witnessing an earthquake that causes a tenth of the city to be destroyed and 7,000 people dying. Now we come to verse 15. Wrapping this up with the seventh trumpet. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was And who is to come? Because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged. And that you should reward your servants and the prophets and the saints. And those who fear your name, small and great. And should destroy those who destroy the earth. That the temple of God was opened in heaven. And the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Again, this is interesting to know because when the seventh seal was open, there was a great silence in heaven for about 30 minutes. This is because there's sort of an end to the age of grace, and now God is acting in wrath and in judgment over the world. 
But now here, when this seventh angel sounds his trumpet, there is loud voices. There's an uproar in heaven, singing and shouting that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Again, it's interesting to note, God right now, he's in control of everything, but he's allowing Satan to be in control of the kingdoms of this world. There have been very few actual Christian kingdoms throughout the past few centuries. Some of them have been great. Some of them have been absolutely terrible, right? That's not the point of our Christianity. That's not why we're here on this earth. We are to bring in the future kingdom that Jesus is going to come and rule and reign. In Luke chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, Satan tempts Jesus He takes him up to this high mountain that he's able to show Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil tempts him and says, All this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. And when Satan gives this claim, Jesus doesn't refute it. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you're lying here. You don't have that power. All Jesus says in verse 8 is, get behind me, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So there will be. There will be that moment that when this seventh seal is opened and the seventh trumpet is blasted, that the uproar in heaven of celebration is going to happen. It's good to remember we're still in this parenthesis here. This isn't going to happen instantaneously like so many of the other seal judgments and trumpet judgments. However, in foreseeing what's going to unfold, heaven roars in praise. Even this morning, right, the last song we sung, we were talking about how one day Jesus is going to come and rule and reign. And I don't know about your heart, but my heart was filled with joy and gladness and hope that one day Jesus is going to come. And what he's going to do in the future. G. Campbell Morgan, he says, In their praise, impending events are set forth to be more fully described later. Again, it was interesting. A lot of the Bible scholars, they pointed to how when you have an election and the winner is determined, that very night there's a celebration and there's also sadness, right? And if, they, if the party that loses, if they're a good sport, they'll come and do a speech afterwards. If they're a bad sport, they just won't talk to anybody, right? But the party that won, that elected official that won, there's an uproar. There's a party. There's confetti. Now, do they become king or president or senator the next day? No, right? That's not what happens, right? It takes time to happen, just in case you guys didn't know, right? It takes time for that to happen. And the same is true with this seven trumpet, that there's going to be celebration in heaven, but it's still going to take some time before Jesus comes and finishes everything and begins to rule and reign. Verse 18 says, The the nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, And should destroy those who destroy the earth. A great question in verse 18 is where do you fit within these different groups of people? When we read scripture, we shouldn't ask what does it mean to me. There's a specific meaning in it. 
but we should ask, how does this apply to me? And a question for each of us, a question that we should sort of sit back and pray, Lord, what group of people do I fall into? Because at the end of the age, his wrath is going to come, the time of the dead, that they would be judged. Then he's going to reward his servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear, those who respect, those who give reverence to his name, those who are small and those that are great. And then that he's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. Again, family, all of humanity is divided into two groups, sons of God and sons of Satan, daughters of God and daughters of Satan. There's no middle ground. There's no middle parent there. So as we look at verse 18, we have to ask ourselves, God, where do I fit in these different groups of people? Am I going to taste of your wrath for all of eternity? Or am I going to taste of the rewards for all of eternity? And the only way you taste of reward and not wrath for all of eternity is by having that relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not by your church attendance. It's not by your works. It's not about how holy you think you are. It's by having that relationship and friendship, that reverence and respect to the name of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Again, I encourage you, pray, ask the Lord, be real, be vulnerable. Lord, where do I fit within these two groups of people? Finally, verse 19, we see that there's going to be another temple built after this temple during the time of the Great Tribulation. It says, then the temple of God was opened in heaven. That's the temple I want to go to, right? God's temple. He builds it himself. And there it says, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. So we see the Ark of the Covenant. The Nazis don't have it, right? It's not in storage in D.C. Harrison Ford, he doesn't have it. God, he's the one that has the Ark of the Covenant. What is this really meaning? What is this really speaking of? There's two ways to look at this. Either God literally has the Ark of the Covenant and it's going to be there in the middle of this new great temple. Or probably what he's speaking of here is that the Ark of the Covenant itself was a picture of the throne room of God. You had the two cherubims, and there at the center, you had God's presence. And the only way the high priest could come into the presence of God was by offering up the blood of an innocent lamb upon the center, that mercy seat there on the Ark of the Covenant. And there in heaven, we have right the four cherubim surrounding the throne room of God, and at the center, we have the throne. And at the throne is the presence of God. And the only way you and I can be there is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Through the blood of the innocent lamb that was sacrificed for you and sacrificed for me. That's the only way we taste of the presence of God. End of verse 19, there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, a great earthquake, and great hail. We can be reminded of the book of Exodus when God's presence comes down upon the mountain there and he tells Israel, hey, come and visit me. All of Israel, when they see the lightning, they hear the thunder, the rumbling, they say, Mo, you go up, right? Moses, you go up there. We're not going up there. You go up there. You tell us what God has to say. We're too afraid of what's going on up there. And we know just the power of the Lord. So once again, how do we apply this whole chapter, Revelation chapter 11, to our lives? Even 
in the worst time of all of human history, God has two witnesses there to give the good news and to give the gospel. And today, the day and age we're living, it's bad, it's rough, right? Some people say, oh, you're poor kids. No, we, they were made for this specific time. You and I, we shouldn't be crying, oh, woe is me, I'm alive during this time. No, you were made to be born for this specific day and age to be a witness and to give your testimony of the facts of Jesus Christ and the events of Jesus Christ in Scripture and in our lives. We were made for this. We were appointed for this specific time. We need to be those witnesses for our friends, for our family, for the world around us. And as we are those witnesses, remember, God is the one who holds your life. No one has the power of death over you unless God allows it. And we, look, we can look all throughout the Old Testament. Even this morning, a devo I read in Spurgeon, he references Exodus 11, verse 7. And in Exodus 11, verse 7, it says, But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue. Against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make difference between the Egyptians and Israel. Again, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If God is going to command all the Egyptian dogs to not lick you, they can't lick you, right? If he's going to command all the Egyptian dogs, they can't bark at you, they can't bite at you, they can do nothing. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We could think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. How they say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, we're still not going to worship your idol. And that should be our heart. God, no matter what's going on, I'm still going to be a witness to you. Even if right now, it is my last minute. Even if right now, this is my last moment. God, I'm going to stand up for righteousness. And they survived the burning, fiery furnace. The men who threw them in there, they died, they burned. The, the ropes that bound them, that burnt up. But they were just hanging out and chilling in the fiery furnace with Jesus Christ. Nebuchadnezzar, he has to say, hey, hey guys, you, you want to come out of there? Hey, do you want to come out of there? That's the mentality we should have. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 22, Daniel's thrown into the den of lions. He says, my God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouth, so that they have not hurt me. Acts chapter 28, verse 4 and 5. Paul, after going through a shipwreck, he's trying to gather sticks for a fire, and a viper bites his hand, and he shakes it off. At first they say, man, what is, so, what is this guy done? He's in a shipwreck, now a snake is biting him, right? But he survives, he just shakes it off. What should we do with all this? Go tempt snakes and shipwrecks and cars? And No, that's not what we should be doing. We should be grabbing a buddy and go and be that witness. Find a friend and be that witness. Give that testimony to the events and the facts that have transpired in Scripture and that have changed your life. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. So worship team, you can come up. Let's all stand and we'll pray. Pastors, you can come up and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you, Lord, that... Uh, the enemy has no power over your word. He can't change the amount of days, the amount of years. He can't change the locations, God. You are the God of the entire universe, God, of every single dimension. So, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would allow you 
to be the ruler and the reign, that you'd reign in each and every one of our lives, God, in every single aspect of our life, God. Lord, I pray that you'd forgive us if our identity is found in anything but you, Lord. If our identity is found in our marital status, Lord, or in our kids, in our job, in our health, Lord. Lord, forgive us. May our identity be found in you, Lord. May we be witnesses of you and what you've done in our lives, God. Lord, give us boldness, Lord. We pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. That if we're that meek person, if we're like Moses saying we can't speak, Lord, that we'd find that buddy to just go to war with, Lord. That we'd be fighting on behalf of you, Lord. That we know that our God, he's able to save by many or by few. And perhaps today, you want to save by few, Lord. I pray you just give us that boldness, Lord. Help us to not live by fear, Lord. Help us to not be that wicked man that flees when no one pursues, but help us to be the righteous man that is as bold as a lion. So, Lord, do that work in us, God. And, Lord, if anyone here, they don't know whether they're saved or not, if anyone here doesn't know if they have this relationship with you or not, Lord, if, or if anyone here, Lord, they, they're lying to themselves, Lord. They think they're right with you. They think they have a friendship with you. They think they're going to heaven. But, Lord, they have no walk, no relationship with you, Lord. They don't fear your name or your word. I pray that you'd convict them, Lord. You'd show them your kindness, your grace and mercy that just beckons them to repent. So, Lord, we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen.